Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, uh, kind of a remarkable uh, thing is happening in, in terms of, A, a play going on, but also a dialogue with the community. Uh, the play is called a Brownsville Song, B-Side for Trey. Running at Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, uh, it's written by Kimberly, who's with us right now from the studios of Yale. It stars uh, as Trey, Curtis Cook Jr., also with us uh, right now from the studios uh, of Yale. Um, a lot of things are happening down in New Haven. There's a special effort being made to make sure all kinds of people from the community see this play. So ticket prices uh, under certain circumstances drop as low as $5. And there's quite a lot of outreach um, to the community as well. And the reason for this is because this is a play very much about um, how people in cities, uh, young people in cities, young males in cities in particular, uh, can be the victims uh, of a special kind of violence that uh, confronts us all the time uh, in in the news every day. Uh, Hopefully not so much so that we become inured to it. Uh, This is certainly a way of telling the story of one particular tragedy, but also about the the lives of the people around the tragedy and kind of how they process it, how they keep going. So uh, I'm going to stop babbling right now. Kimberly, maybe you could do a better job than I'm doing right now. Uh, Give people a a sense, people who have not seen the show yet, what it is. Uh, Well, I think you were doing a good good job. I think that was a fine job. I think that for me, you know, I think the play is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I think everybody who comes to see it brings their own set of experiences to it and walks out the door with it their own impression. For me, there were a lot of things going around in my mind when I was writing the play, but the driving force from the very beginning was that I just wanted to bring people into contact with the intimacy of the grief that this family was going through and how they were trying to pick themselves up and continue um, Curtis, uh, you played Trey. You're the one who's going to be the victim of the violence. So this isn't a spoiler. It's something that, that basically everybody seeing the play knows. But we get to meet you. We get to hear your aspirations, your your college application. We hear about the kind of life that you're planning for yourself before this happens. I know this role is really important to you. That You've auditioned for it more than once. You auditioned, I think, for the, the Lincoln Center version of this play. Why did Trey grab you so much? Why is he so important to you? Well, for me, it's telling partially my story because I've grown up in neighborhoods where this senseless violence has occurred, and it's, it occurs everywhere. It's, 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 it's pretty ridiculous how rampant it is right now. But it's partially my story. I, I have friends that are directly touched by the, the stuff that's happening in this play. I, I've been touched directly by things that have happened in this play, that are being portrayed in this play. So for me as an actor, it's like this is the epitome of what I want to do. I'm doing this play that's telling my story. You know, I'm not pretending to be other things, which is great as well. I love to do that, and I, and I, and I hope I get more opportunities to do that. But I get to actually tell something that's actually close to me too. Like that's ridiculous. I'm lucky. That's a, that's a lucky guy to me. So, so that's why it's kind of important to me. It's like, all right, it's cool for me to get out there, spread out some kind of positivity and really be honest and really be fully honest with, with what I'm doing out there on the stage and what I'm giving people to leave with. 
Um, a lot of people would say this story is a, a, a tragic uh, story. Why? How do you find positivity in it? I find positivity in it knowing that it is a real story and that any situation in life, my, my views on it, can be turned into a positive. I can understand saying it's a, it's a tragic story, but out of tragedy comes miracles sometimes, you know? And I'm pretty sure a lot of people can, can say that for themselves. When bad things have happened, depending on how they chose to cope with it, and the kind of people that they had around them and the environment that they were in have been able to turn that thing around and turn it into something so beautiful, so wonderful. That's how you hear a lot of success stories of, of people turning their failures and tragedies into success. Um, Kimberly, uh, you hear Curtis saying how real this story is for him. You started with a real story, right? There was a, a young uh, guy named Trey in Brownsville, a boxer uh, like Trey. Tell us a little bit of the story that inspired you. I follow the blogs of some female boxers, competitive amateur boxers, and one of them was based in Brooklyn. She's retired now, but she coaches at a gym out in East Flatbush. And she had written this post, this was in the summer of 2012, about a young man at their gym that they had lost. It was just a very simple one-page post about him, but it stayed with me. And there were some details from that that just kind of got stuck in my gut. And so, you know, when I sat, I was actually supposed to be working on a different play, but when I sat down to start writing, that first monologue of Lena's just kind of came blazing out. Uh, Curtis, you know, you said that this story is very real for you. And and I think, I mean, I don't know, I'm a really different generation from you, but I, I grew up white in West Hartford, and I just didn't know anybody who got shot. And I think probably if I'd grown up even in that era, um, African-American in Hartford, I, I would have. So how close is this to your reality? You've lost people, right? Uh, I will make the disclaimer now and say that I'm not in the shoes of this family so specifically, I'm, I, I can't say that in my family, immediate brother, sister, whatever, I've definitely lost people. But, yes, I have lost people, people, friends from back home that I haven't been home to see in forever, going back and heard that they're gone now. They're gone, people I've gone to school with. Unfortunately, my cousin just died a little while ago uh, to some senseless stuff, not gun violence, but senseless violence. And um, it, it's just important for me to show what's going on with these families What's going on with how they choose to do it and what our perception on the outside when we hear about all this stuff, because it's such a common thing now on the television, which is which is so tragic to me, first of all, that we're kind of getting numb to it. I have to point a finger at myself, too, because it just seems like it's an occurrence that's happening over and over again. It's just like, all right, that story happened again and you feel sad, but then you turn the channel and you go to your next thing. It's natural. That's what you do. But this is a problem. This is something that is, is affecting everybody, even though you don't even know it's affecting you at the time, even if you're a white living in West Hartford. It's still touching you in some way, just not directly, but indirectly it is touching you. So I want to bring people's heart back into it, which is not an easy task, and, and I don't think we bear the responsibility of handling all of it. I think this play for me, some of this play is about reminding people that we have a part in the numbing of it all and, and actually bringing it back up and getting more passionate about it and doing something to, to, to change it. So, Kimberly, as playwright, obviously one of the things you're doing is trying to work against that numbing. Uh, and, and it you know, I identify a lot with what he's saying right now. Although, I mean, even today, picking up the papers and reading as much as I can of the story of Walter Scott uh, and learning as much as I can about who he was and what his family was, there's sort of a point at which I put the newspaper down and I get on with the rest of my day, and, which is not an option 
for the Scott family in Charleston. And so this is kind of what you're doing with the, with the play, too, is just saying, well, well, here's the rest of the planets in his orbit. Uh, here's his grandmother. Here's his stepmother. Here's his little sister. Here's who they are. So did you have a real specific mission in bringing those characters into focus for us? Yeah, I did. I think that it it had a lot to do with what Curtis was just talking about in that whatever sadness I felt uh, reading about this boy that was lost, I realized that his family was going through it and they were going to be continuing to go through it when I, you know, went on with my day and did whatever it was that I do. And there was something about that, you know, just the world kind of going on. And the fact that there are certain deaths that don't get a lot of media, they maybe show up on the local news for a minute at night, but then they're gone. And there was something about the juxtaposition of the grief and the pain that I knew that this family was going through and the fact that it didn't seem to matter much or that there can be this idea that some deaths matter more than others. And I think that the root underlying causes that create an environment where those things happen come from the same place and that it is something that we are all part of because we all live here and these cities belong to all of us. You know, the kind of separation that can lead to a thought like, oh, well, that's what happens in that neighborhood. It's just a dangerous neighborhood. And if you go there, you know, Mm. that's just what you get. That idea that we can somehow separate ourselves from the places in our cities that are facing such challenges is troubling to me as well. Because like Curtis was saying before, even if something doesn't impact you directly in your day-to-day life, there is still something that is diminished for all of us when these things happen and happen year after year. But for me, it really began in the intimacy of grief and just wanting someone to care that this boy had died. I, I really identify with what you're saying. At least, you know, one thing that had struck me here in Connecticut a few years ago, we had a very highly publicized murder in Cheshire, which everybody n- knew about. And it was a horrible murder. And, yes. and, it, and the amount of revulsion that it excited in people was completely warranted. But it was really kind of the only murder in Connecticut that anybody knew about. And, you know, as I looked around the cities, uh, there were just really also incredibly tragic stories, incredibly horrible, senseless, violent deaths that had happened. And nobody knew anything about them. And, and I agree with you, Kim that for a certain segment of society, there's, it's almost like breakage. It's, like, it's just an acceptable level. There's a tolerable level of violence in urban settings that happens to people of color that somehow or other, without really consciously thinking that, people have absorbed this notion that, yeah, that just kind of happens. And so we, we don't really elevate it to the level of tragedy the way we would uh, with something that's sort of not supposed to happen. And so, Curtis, I had this remarkable exchange with uh, some young people online when I was writing about that fact. And these people, these young people said, yeah, but those people in Cheshire were innocent. <laughs> I thought, well, do you, do you think all the people in cities are somehow? But there is that sense. And I, maybe, Curtis, you can talk a little bit about who Trey is and how you want people to understand who he is as he approaches his death. For me, it's not complicated. After talking to people that have seen the show afterwards and seeing how they felt and what they related with, people that looked nothing like me, didn't look like they came from the kind of backgrounds that I come from, Mm -hmm. what they related to was pretty simple, that this kid was a cool kid who was just trying to figure everything out, just like everybody else is trying to figure everything out. 
due to his circumstances and where he lives at, his path is different than what other people's path may be. But at the same time, it's kind of the same. He's going to school. He's working. He's loving his sister. He's loving his grandmother. He's doing the same exact things that everybody does. But because of the circumstances around it and what labels have been put on it, that fact has been blinded to people. You don't see that. You, you only see these facts that are not totally even facts. They're these groupings of statistics that don't totally tell the truth about what's going on. They do indicate something, but it's not the total truth. But we take it at face value, and it dilutes what is really in these places and what's in every place. And that this kid is a young kid just wanting to be loved and wanting to love. And Kimberly, as playwright, obviously, you want to work against any temptation you might feel to make Trey perfect. These are all human beings. You know, maybe Trey's doing everything 85% right, which is probably better than my percentage when I was his age. But these are people basically trying to lead good lives and do the right thing. But you must have been a little bit at war with yourself or had to think carefully about how perfect a person you want to make Trey. He's not perfect, right? Yeah, no, he's not. And he's based on because I because I train in boxing gyms as well and I've spent a lot of time in boxing gyms. Trey is really based on a lot of the young men that I've trained with over the years and gotten to know. And I think that is a really important thing to remember about Trey, and that's something that the director, Eric Ting, and I talked about when we were first discussing the play, is that he's not perfect. He screws up. You know, he's inadvertently mean to his little sister. He doesn't want to do his homework. He's trying to put his grandma off. He's a regular kid. And there are things in the play that hint at a time when he was struggling really hard with everything that was happening in his life, and Lena really bailed him out, but he's doing his best to get through it, just like we all do. He's not perfect, but he's doing his best. We're talking to Kimber Lee, playwright of Brownsville song B-Side for Trey, and Curtis Cook Jr., who plays the lead character Trey in this play. It's running at the Long Wharf Theater through April 19th. Now, the play tells the story of the death of Trey, an 18-year-old black man caught in the crossfire of the urban violence that so many families, especially those of color, are forced to live with today. We get an up-close view of his family in grief, trying hard to recover from their loss of their son, brother, grandson in this neighborhood, Brownsville, Brooklyn. Long Wharf has been trying to start a community conversation around the play, holding community events and offering tickets as low as $5. So, students from the CPBN Learning Lab Satellite Campus of Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School here in Hartford went to see the New Haven play the other night. In the next segment, they'll join us to ask Kimber and Curtis a few questions and hear what they have to say. But first, we'll go out of this segment hearing their reflections on what the play meant to them. We'll start with O'Dane Campbell. He liked the way Trey tried to cheer up his little sister Divine, who, as a young dancer, was given the part of a tree when all the other dancers got to be swans. I like the part when his sister said She's a tree, and he get kind of upset about it. Then after he get a little upset, he start to calm her down, tell her that she's going to be the greatest tree ever. Walter Vasquez was touched by the family's desire to forgive Trey's stepmother when her drug and alcohol problems caused her to abandon the family. What really jumped out to me was the relationship for the mother of the kids where... The mother's not really the mother of Trey, but the mother of Dee. Mm -hmm. And the whole progression where forgiveness 
was starting to take its um, stride and then the family started to forgive each other and when Trey died, it kind of brought the family closer together, especially with his mom and the grandmother and also with Dee. So even though it was a sad moment, it kind of bridged like the broken pieces of that family together. The Quan Herring thought it was bittersweet to learn after Trey's death that he had won a scholarship for an essay he had struggled so hard to write. One thing that I really liked about the play was how he ends up actually winning the essay. I like the placement of showing when he won was towards the end when um, you know that he doesn't actually end up going, but to know that he was a bright enough student. And without have witnessing like the rest of the play, you wouldn't know that he would be one of those people to be able to go. It was just inter- it was an interesting ending. I think that it was really nice where they ended off where um, he wrote this story and he got the um, scholarship. It has a bit of like a hypothetical ending, which is what would have happened had he not been shot and killed. Do you think it makes it sadder? Yeah, but no, at the same it's sadder, but at the same time it, it's a brighter ending. It's a, it goes both ways sometimes. Jose Acevedo came away feeling Trey could have been anybody he wanted to be. The portrayal of Trey as a young guy that could be anyone is so accurate. His attitude toward certain things and how all the challenges that life had thrown at him, he'd still overcome them. There was dialogue between him and Dee's mother, his ex-stepmom, I guess you could say, where he said, yeah, you messed up. I've messed up as well, but that doesn't give you an excuse to stop moving along, moving forward. Those were voices from the CPBN Learning Lab satellite campus of Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School in Hartford. You'll be hearing more from them after this break. We're back talking to Kimber Lee. She's the playwright of Brownsville's song, B-Side for Trey, uh, and Curtis Cook Jr., who plays the part of Trey whose character is killed in a moment of senseless urban violence in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. Brownsville's song, B-Side for Traits, running at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven, runs through April 19th. Now, when we had the students come in from the CPBN Learning Lab satellite campus of the Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School in Hartford, um, some remarkable things happened. But one of the really remarkable things was it it happened when Floyd Watkiss, one of the students, uh, was talking about a situation that he was in that was a little bit parallel to the one faced by Trey, the protagonist uh, of the play. Um, Trey is a guy who's got dreams of hope and glory. He's trying to stay on the right track. He's trying to go to college. Uh, but he does have a friend, Junior, who, who, who may be sort of drifting in a slightly different direction. Um, I was asking these students uh, whether or not they recognized that relationship between Trey and Junior. And Floyd started to talk about a situation where a friend of his, you'll hear him say that a friend of his is in a beef with some other people, uh, and he worries that he might be drawn into that beef somehow. Uh, and then you'll hear Kimberly talk, and then a really remarkable response from the actor Curtis Cook Jr., the actor who's playing Trey. So that's how we'll begin this segment. And, you know, one the question I had for uh, the students here in the room, too, you know, you have uh, Trey in this play, and then he has a friend. And, you know, I mean, everybody has a friend who maybe isn't the most, the best possible influence. Did you guys recognize that relationship, too? It's Junior, right? Is that his name? Yes. I bet you guys are all Trey's, but do you know Juniors? I mean, are there Juniors in that, that uh, a friendship that maybe you have to deal with that you know that isn't the best one for you? Yeah. Yeah? Who's saying yeah? There. Yeah. Talk about that. 
All right, like I have this friend. Can I, I'm not gonna say his name. No, but, don't say his name. Yeah, <laughs> he be going like to the Y and stuff, but because he do stuff like he drives and stuff like that, so they hate on him. Mm-hmm. So he caught up in a beef with them. Like right now, he in a beef with them, but because I be with him, mm-hmm. they consider me as one of his brothers. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm caught up in it too. So somebody's in a beef. It's easy to get drawn in just because of your association yeah. with a with a person like because that. I'm always with him. And Kimberly, I think one of the things that, that goes on in this play is you have a character like Trey who really is trying to make all the right moves and do all the right things and has a real clear vision of his future. And just the margin for error is smaller, right? Like one relationship, one friendship that's not the perfect one, uh, one decision you make that's not the perfect decision can be your undoing. And in a way, that's a reality that I think a lot of us I mean, I don't know. I feel like growing up, I was allowed to make a lot of mistakes, uh, and it didn't cost me that much. But you, the reality that you present is one in which the margin for error is maybe a little smaller. I think that's a fantastic way of putting it. You know, we all, when we're young and we're growing up and we're trying to figure things out, we all do all kinds of things to explore what it means to be a human being in the world. And I think that living in an environment where that margin is very, very narrow is is a very challenging thing. And I got to go in a little bit about Junior. It, it is very important, I think, that we all understand that Junior is not the bad kid. Mm-hmm. In the same way that Trey is not the good kid, Junior is caught up in the same kinds of complexities and the same kinds of struggles that Trey is having, he's walking the knife's edge just as much as Trey is, and he may not have Mm. Alina in his life to keep him where he needs to be. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to what I was talking about earlier about the sets of circumstances that underlie all of these situations, which is not to take anything away from the personal responsibility of the individual, but I think that's a very convenient way to excuse the rest of us turning our head if it was a kid like Junior who got shot, Mm. that we feel like, well, it was his own fault because of the decisions he was making. I think until we've all been in his shoes and had to face the kinds of options that he had available to Mm. him, it's very easy for us to make a judgment like that. I think Junior is someone that's struggling through, and I think he's someone who is also dealing with a huge amount of heartbreak about his friend that he does not have the resources to deal with. Um, Curtis Cook, I can hear you there in the background. Uh, you've got things to say, I think, about the uh, about the Trey and, and Junior relationship. How does it look to you? Uh, what was the young man that just just uh, told us his one, his story just a second ago? Yeah, that was yeah, that was Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. Thank thank you, man, for doing that. I appreciate that. Uh, I've been in your kind of situation, and it's so tough knowing that you know this dude that you do care for, your friend. Yeah. is getting this heat on him that you don't even think he deserves, but it's for some stupid reason, whatever the reason is, you know, yeah. and you feel like you got to stick by him and, and, and fight with him for everything, which is totally noble and, and, and right, and you should be loyal to friends, but friends should be loyal to each other. It's not just your mm-hmm. side, it's his side as well, you know, and both of you, I don't know how old you are, my friend, and I don't need to know, but um, if you're lucky enough to have those people in your life, ask them for advice and don't be scared to ask for advice of what should be done in situations like this. And not to be afraid to just follow what your path is. You know, we we get caught up as young people trying to follow 
what the group's path is, especially in these in these kind of neighborhoods. You know, we get this peer pressure thing is a real thing, and it's a real thing everywhere. You know, it's a real yeah. thing at Yale. Every, yeah. People are put in the peer pressure situations in Yale. So it's the same thing, but th- that line that you're walking, I know it's hard, man, and, and I, I, really sh- I wish you so much luck and, and hoping that it turns out right and that nothing crazy happens over some stupidity, man. I really hope so, and the only way I can give advice about that is just be immature. I know you didn't ask for any advice, but I just, <laughs> I just, hear, that, I just okay. hear that story, and I know that story, and I, I lived it, and I know what I felt like and how horrible I felt about certain things and then knowing that certain things were the right choices and certain things weren't. When I was thinking about some, some of the questions that would be asked, mm-hmm. I related Trey to a little bit of Kendrick Lamar. Uh, I don't know if you guys listen to Kendrick Lamar over there. Of course yeah, they you do. do. Yeah. Of course you do, because Kendrick Lamar is a beast. Um, and But the reason why that first album that he put out, his first official album, uh, Good Kid, Mad City, was so powerful for me is because it felt like it told my story of a person in a situation that knows what's going on around them is not for them, just like everyone else, but they actually have the bravery to kind of start stepping out of it, start trying to step out of it and find out that there's other things out there where some other people, they feel the same way. They know that they don't want to be doing this stuff. You know, they don't want to be doing, they don't want to be doing this nefarious stuff that they're doing, man. They don't. They do it because the options that they have, the options that are presented to them, this is the best thing for them in that moment. For me, that's a lot of what this play is, of really building up people's bravery and building up people's hope that you can start doing what you need to do. And unfortunately, something tragic may happen. But at the end of the day, ah, I'm sorry, I can't even talk no more. Cause no, I'm like no, getting... no, 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 I think, no. I think that's great because I think that's really, it's about what Trey says at the end of the play, which is writing your own story mm-hmm. and not letting anybody else tell you what that should be. My heart aches for the character of Junior, for that person in that situation that moment that he has with Lena came from a story that a friend of mine who is, was a school teacher in Brownsville, uh, something that she told me about one of the kids that she knew in the neighborhood who they lost. And she said to me that she just wanted to run into him 20 years from now and have him look at her and kind of go, yeah, you was right, Miss Lena. <laughs> <laughs> and... She's not going to get that chance now, and it just broke her heart, and that stayed with me too. So I feel like, you know, the play is situated in a place where we're very worried for Junior, but I want there to be hope for him as well. There has to be hope for everyone. Uh, That's Kimberly. She's the playwright of Brownsville's song, B-Side for Trey. Uh, That's playing at the Long Wharf Theater. Curtis Cook Jr. plays Trey in Brownsville's song, B-Side for Trey. We've got some uh, Journalism Media Academy uh, students in here, too, uh, who've seen the play. And uh, I want to ask you if if you feel changed by this play. Oh, Dane, I'm going to get you to say something on mic here. Did you feel as though after you saw this play, it changed either your outlook on other people, your outlook on your own life? You're, You're listening to Curtis and Kimber right now talking about just the decisions people make and how they can have consequences that you didn't anticipate. And did you feel like you came out of the play even a tiny bit changed? Well, this, like, um, couldn't find a really suitable word to explain how great the play was, <laughs> especially the essay. Essay was was really, really good. This is the college essay, the college application essay that Trey's writing in the play. It, it changed my, um, maybe my point of view on, like, how would I see this society and, like, Things that happened do, during the play, I, I sort of seen it in reality. Reality, so um, kind of relates to that. 
In other words, you're, you're seeing stuff on stage. I mean, a lot of times you go see a play, it's it's not your life. It's not a life that you even recognize. You're saying that this play, this is a reality that you know anyway. Yeah. All right, what we're going to do is we're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to come back with the third and final segment here. We're talking uh, about the play, Brownsville Song, B-Side for Trey, uh, playing at the Long Wharf Theater right now. We'll take a break, and we will come back. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from our executive producer, Katie Tolarski. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Danny Glover. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff taking boxing lessons, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And now, back to Colin. All right. We're talking to Kimberly. She's the playwright of Brownsville's song B-Side for Trey at the Long Wharf Theater. Curtis Cook Jr. plays Trey, one of the leads in that aforementioned show. We'll also have some students from the Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School in Hartford. They saw the play. They've got some questions. They've got some comments. As we went into the last break, O'Dane was talking about the recognizability of this situation. I know, Jose, you wanted to say a little bit more about that, uh, how this play. I know sometimes, I know when you're in high school, you know, people say, oh, you're going to go see a play tomorrow. And you think, ah, do I even want to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's all about connectivity. Like, it's relative. You can relate to something like this, where most plays, when you think of a play, you think of, Shakespeare, you think of all those classics. You never think of like um, a story such as this where it touches home, where it's like something that happens and something that can happen and something that while certain people might not be able to, a lot of people can relate to. And whether it's just the simple fact that um, Trey had a difficult time writing his college essay or that he had bad influences in his life, there's so many aspects to the story that you can relate to. It's just, it's so good. I don't know. <laughs> so uh, Kimberly, Shakespeare doesn't need us to stick up for him. But you can sort of make the argument that Romeo and Juliet is, is, is about young people who die because, senselessly because of things that have to do with their associations. I mean, Mercutio dies because essentially he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's friends with Romeo. That turns out not to be such a great thing. I mean, a lot of the people who die uh, in a play like that, in some ways, it, it's not all that different from the scenario that you're painting. It's just hundreds of years apart. I think that's true, and I think a lot of the great human themes that are in Shakespeare and other classical plays, they resurface in every generation, you know, like West Side Story, for example. It means a lot to me to hear what Jose was saying, that he had an experience that he felt like connected for him in some kind of authentic way. That's wonderful to hear. I want to talk a little bit about the family relationships in here, too. And so Trey and his grandmother, Lena, they really they kind of yell at each other, and they, they use some uh, pretty colorful language. when they're, I do, You guys don't yell at your grandmothers like that, do you? No. no. <laughs> but, but did that seem very real in another way to you? At the first scene, when the grandmother is talking about, 
I know maybe given navigation about what's going on and when she started swear that made me realize that what she's saying is actually really he be she being serious with with us telling us how it is of real. Mm-hmm. Chris, how do you feel about those scenes? I'm assuming, just as Odane is saying, this is a way of showing people a family situation that they may not recognize exactly, but they recognize some central truth about it? Exactly. I'm actually fortunate enough to live with my grandparents, <laughs> so I have conversations with my grandmother every day that get heated, but never to the point of cursing. I can't curse at my grandmother. But I have been in those households where cursing is flying back and forth, but I still feel the love in the house. It's not this this place where it's just mean and mean-spirited people just yelling at each other and not liking each other. No, I've been in those situations and hearing all that and being my ears perking up like, whoa, did you really just say that? But then they're laughing the next second. You know, they're joking around with each other. So I just took it as this is just someone's account of their life and it's very authentic to me. Curtis Cook Jr., I know one thing that you've done is try to explore New Haven, the city where you're acting. That's not where you're from. You're from Detroit, right? Are you from Detroit? No, no, no. no. I actually I have family in Detroit, but uh, I'm not from Detroit. I'm from uh, I'm from New York. I'm from Yonkers, New York. Okay. So you've been trying to, to learn a little bit about New Haven, uh, about what the realities are there. So tell us about that. What do you see in New Haven? Do you see a world that Trey would recognize as similar to his own? <laughs> yes, definitely. New Haven is an interesting place. It's a cool place. It's a great place. But then also, that's all in like a two-mile radius or something. But once I step over that line, it totally shifts. It's kind of jarring to see how it happens like that. I made the comparison to somebody I was talking to that it kind of reminded me of Washington, D.C. or a little bit of a Detroit in a way. It was interesting to see how the dynamic totally shifted and then who I saw walk around. But, but during walking around the the downtown area of New Haven, you see everybody, though, you know? You don't just see people that go to Yale. I see everybody downtown New Haven, which was which was cool to me. But then to know that right across that next street, it doesn't look like how it looks over here on the green. It looks totally different. How is it like this? I'm just left with questions, really. All right. Well, the guys in my studio are. They're communicating with each other in some way. I want to. Uh, so who's here? For, who is from Hartford here? Everybody? Everybody here from Hartford? So, so did you recognize Hartford? I mean, did you recognize the lives of people in Hartford, the world you know in Hartford? Did you recognize that in this play? Who wants to talk about that? How about you? you, you um, did you see a life that you recognized there? A few of the things were um, really similar with how um, you have a, a child from a low-income family who is financially incapable of paying through college, and he has to write a really good essay, and there's a lot of um, pressure on him to do so. And under that pressure, there's... There's the struggle of going through everyday life without having enough money or or not just that, just going to school and managing all the weight of that sports. There was there was a lot of similarities with it. So, yeah. How about anybody else? Do you did you recognize do you recognize people you knew in this play? Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's such a great play. The actors played such a great role. Like I felt so involved in it. Mm-hmm. And I like the setting where it seems kind of like a really urban setting. Mm-hmm. It reminded me a lot of New York and their subway systems and how a lot of people envision urban kids coming up in that sort of scenario. And it kind of like encapsulated that actual experience because a lot of us being from Hartford and urban areas go through many things like this. And even if we ourselves haven't gone through it, we know people that have. And it was, I can say myself, it was really accurate in depicting that sort of lifestyle. And Kimberly, as playwright, 
Do you feel as though this story is kind of transferable to urban communities all around the country? I mean, it's about the Brownsville section of Brooklyn, but I assume that you think it's a story that, I mean, unfortunately, we know it's a story that could happen in Charleston. We know it could happen almost anywhere. Do you feel as though it's a story that speaks to almost any urban community in America? You know, first, I just got to say, young people, I love your voices. Thank you so much for being here. I think it's transferable in the way that any human story is transferable. I think that there are things in the script that are particular to Brooklyn, that are particular to my experience of the rhythms of Brooklyn. But in terms of when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking about it being transferable to other communities. If people see things in the play that they can relate to, that touch on something of their experience, that's fantastic. Um, I did uh, say that maybe some of them have questions, and it did seem as though maybe they did. I don't know. Floyd, uh, did you have a question you wanted to ask about this play? I wanted to ask him, like, how he's so focused when he's doing the play. Like, he was just, he didn't, <laughs> like, really this. messed up nothing. Good word. Thank you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because I didn't mess up. Not that you know of, bro. Nah, nah. It was, uh, <laughs> but uh, seriously, like you guys said, you felt real for you because it feels real for all the cast members. I can speak for, I know I can speak for my cast members in saying that we are a family off the stage and then when we get on the stage. So being focused is just me just living it out, man. Like Kimberly's writing is so good that it just automatically connected with us when we first picked up the pages and read it for the first time. You know, he was like, dang, yo, that sounds like me talking. All of us had those experiences reading the script. That really helped, and, and this doesn't always come along. It really doesn't always come along when you're when you're doing plays. I mean, there's so many different plays that are done different ways, and people get to great places in, in, in totally different paths, but this was our path, and we're very lucky that we clicked right off the bat and really felt like we were a family, so it was easy for us to tra- easier for us to translate that onto the stage. Okay, yeah, Walter, you had a question? So when you were speaking with the script, when you were trying to act and, like, taking the persona of Trey... Was it easy for you, or what, did it prove like a challenge like later on as a script when you were like in the middle of production for the final product when you were showcasing it to hundreds of people? Uh, uh, wow, that's weird to hear you say hundreds of people. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Well, it seemed um, like hundreds of people because it was. Such yeah, no, a no, good, it was. It just I just don't like really think about it at the moment, but it definitely is, and it's cool. Yes, there's always some challenging part of it. If it's not challenging, then then what are you really doing it for? Because where are you going to learn? Um, so with the director, Eric Ting, man, uh, any problems that I had, I, he just made us feel so comfortable that I could just go to him and ask him. And he literally even he didn't come off as like, oh, I know everything. He came off with it as, oh, OK, that's a problem. Let's try to fix it. Let's find out what's the best way to do this. And like I said, we, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky to to be working with a director like that and with the cast members, Anthony Martinez-Briggs, who plays uh, Junior, uh, Katrina Ganey, who plays uh, Lena, uh, Sung Young Sung Yun Cho, who plays uh, Meryl, and uh, Katja Welsh, who plays uh, my little sister Divine, man. Whenever we had any difficulties, we can literally just talk to each other, like I just said, a family, and like work out the problems and then see, oh, so maybe I should do this a little different so this helps you in your scene. And then they will be like, all right, so I'll do this a little different so it can help you in your scene, and we'll try it out, and we'll see if it works. And it just worked out like that, man. I'm telling you, we were really lucky to to be in this production together, all of us. You know, Kimberly, earlier, um, Curtis was just talking about walking around New Haven and, and, and noticing that you could cross a block and, and go from one reality to another. Oh, you, you have your question ready? No, yeah, no, you're not, I was no. Gonna say that. It's too yeah. late now. No, no, no. no <laughs> jump in. Jump in. Jump in. I didn't know you were ready. All right, go ahead. Black right. one, go. Um, I had two questions, so I'm just going to choose one of them. 
one in the beginning you said that you came to New Haven and you saw like a drastic difference in like the dynamics of the city. Could you describe a few of those like specifically other than, you know, just like <laughs> it goes saying? down to as simple as uh sidewalks, bro. <laughs> like it goes down to that that simple. I walk through downtown, past the Apple Store, down Broadway, down Elm, whatever that street is, that big street is. And it's, like, really nice. Like, all the stuff is around. You see the, the organic shops and everything. You're like, ah, that's cool. Yeah, great, healthy. And then you literally walk down the street, right past the pizza shop, and the sidewalks get all cracked up and they're all pulled up off the ground mm-hmm. and there's weeds growing out of it. And mm-hmm. I did not see that just down the road next to the parking lot. I did not see mm-hmm. that. And then you see... Just writings on everything and, and and garbage everywhere. And the houses that look like they're abandoned. I'm not totally sure if they were abandoned. I'm not sure. But some houses I saw look like they were abandoned. Like, that's why I said it reminded me a little bit of Detroit because I had a family reunion there. Seeing stuff out there, man, and the fact that I, I noticed that a little bit in New Haven is kind of crazy to me that I'm, I'm looking at Yale down the street. But not to judge New Haven because everyone has – every city has these kind of problems. Most cities have these kind of problems that we are all supposed to be dealing with. And I don't have the answers. I don't know how to deal with these. This is my little part so far, and it will be taken a step further in whatever way that I can make it happen after I'm done with the run of this play. But, yeah, man, I noticed those drastic differences. Those things, are they definitely hit you in the face as you cross that block. I just want to add to that a question because I feel like something really unjust happens when we look at either neighborhoods or, you know, in the case of Detroit, an entire city that is undergoing such a difficult Mm. challenge in every respect. And that when we look at those places, somehow we look at them with this sense of blame, like, why don't they get it together? when really what's happening there is that they are not being supported in the way that maybe the rest of us enjoy support, you know, infrastructure, whatever it is that's going on. So it becomes this question in my mind of, like, how can we look at places that are struggling and recognize what's going on there and be clear-eyed about it without vilifying the people who live in the community? Well, I do think a, a play like yours, Kimberly, uh, Brown, uh, Brownsville song, B-Side for Trey, helps a lot uh, to do exactly that and to put a human face on all this and say, well, these are real people. I've got a little bit of a Cinderella problem here. Uh, we're about to turn into a pumpkin, uh, at least in terms of the <laughs> Yale studio and the connection we're using to get to you folks. So we're going to have to say goodbye to Kimberly, the playwright. Curtis Cook Jr. plays Trey in Brownsville song, B-Side for Trey. It's running uh, at Long Wharf through April 19th. Thanks so much, Kimberly and uh, Curtis Cook Jr., thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so much, Colin. Okay, bye-bye now. Wow, I just thought those theater people would never leave. Uh, (laughs) No, they were really great, actually, to have on. Uh, But still with me are some seniors from the uh, Journalism Media Academy, uh, Vaquan Herring and Odane Campbell, uh, Walter Vasquez, and let's see, Vasquez and Jose Acevedo. I, I worked on it and I screwed it up anyway. Jose Acevedo and Floyd Watkins uh, are all here in studio with us. Uh, we're going to just uh, have a little sort of uh, aftertime here to talk about uh, the play and, and, and what it meant to them and, and what moved them. So, uh, Odane, I'm coming back to you right now. Talk a little bit about what you liked and what you didn't like about this play. I like the part when his sister said she's a tree and he get kind of upset about it. Then after he get a little upset, he start to calm her down, tell her that she's going to be the greatest tree ever. He would like 
telling that being a tree is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. But then he realized that what w- what he's doing. Then um he tell her that being a tree is a good is a good thing. He she will be like the, the best tree ever. So maybe you recognize that as a situation where initially you said something you re- really didn't mean to say. The first thing you said, the first thing you come that comes out of your mouth isn't exactly the right thing. That's what happens to Trey, right? The first thing he says to her, he hasn't really thought it through how that's going to land on her. Yeah. yeah no, how about the rest of you? What, what were things that you either liked or didn't like about this play? I like the colorful vocabulary that they had um, where – the relationship with Trey and Elena, his grandmother, mm-hmm. how while most people might see it as a sign of disrespect for Trey being younger than her mm-hmm. to say those bad words, curse, mm. um, in front of her and at her, while they might see it as a bad thing, I kind of visualize it as a sign of respect where they – it was a, a mutual sign of respect where they both acknowledged that they loved each other so much that – whether or not they were cursing or using bad language, foul language, they they still respected each other. So it wasn't kind of like they were being insulted. real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. having a relationship with each other, like uh, yeah, Floyd, Floyd, get right down on that microphone. Make sure like, we, I want to make sure I hear what you're saying. They having a relationship. Maybe they having like this friend friendship bond between each other and this grandma and grandson thing. Um, how about who else? Who else wants to sort of give me a sort of a general either thing that you liked or didn't like? Uh, Vicuan or uh, or Walter, who wants to go next? Well, now I see they're waving each other off here. Uh, go ahead. It's going um, clockwise, so you're, you're next up in the, in the line. <laughs> there's there's some kind of battle going on between you two guys. I don't know what it's about. But yeah, sir, Walter, you go next. What were either things that you didn't you liked or didn't like? Things that really jumped out at you about this play? What really jumped out to me was the relationship for the mother of the kids where the mother's not really the mother of Trey but the mother of Dee. Mm-hmm. And the whole progression where forgiveness was starting to take its um, stride and then the family starting to forgive each other and when Trey died, it kind of brought the family closer together, especially with his mom and the grandmother and also with Dee. So even though it was a sad moment, it kind of bridged, like, the broken pieces of that family together. Make a change, trying to be better, yeah. and trying to step back into the lives of the ones that she cared about. Um, yeah, well, no, that's not, I don't think that's a spoiler, Jose. I think we can say that part. Um, I don't want to, you know, I, well, no, I, don't, I see, I don't think the way that this play works, you're going to, you have to worry too much about spoilers. The, the play, you know, it isn't really a, a it, it isn't a beginning to end exactly kind yeah. of story anyway, right? Yeah. So, yeah, what were, what were you going to say? Um, one thing that I really liked about the play was how he ends up actually winning the essay. I like the placement of showing when he won was towards the end when um, you know that he doesn't actually end up going. But to know that he was a bright enough student and without have witnessing like the rest of the play, you wouldn't know that he would be one of those people to be able to go. It was just inter- it was an interesting ending. I think that was really nice where they ended off where um he wrote the story and he got the um scholarship. It has a bit of like a hypothetical ending which is what would have happened had he not been shot and killed. Do you think it makes it sadder? Yeah, but no, at the same it's sadder but at the same time it, it's a brighter ending. It's a, it goes both ways sometimes. Yeah, it's sweet and spicy. Yeah, I get what you're like, saying. It's, you know what yeah. I mean? It's kind of a bittersweet sweet kind of thing like. Yeah. yeah. All right, you're last. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I, I feel like is that this is 
um, so much of a reminder for all of us. Uh, I mean, you, you can't live your life in fear, right? You can't live your life like, you know, I have to be so afraid because some really bad thing is going to happen to me. On the other hand, the prisons and morgues wind up full of like the fourth guy to get into the car one night, the guy who didn't ask a whole lot of questions about where everybody else was going, the guy who knew the least about what was happened, about what was about to happen. To me, this is a play a little bit about that too, about, you know, I mean, I don't know what you guys took away from it, but what I would want a young person, uh, and I am a father of a son, to take away from this is, you know, maybe ask that extra question. Like, what's what's going on here tonight? You know, you know, who am I with? What's yeah. what's about to happen? Because uh, you guys all have like just these, you know, you're, you guys, you, you must identify with Trey. You've got bright futures. You've got ambitions for yourself. Selves. Thank you. uh, and uh, but it's sort of, you know, and you don't want to live in fear, but you don't want to make a mistake either. Right. Yeah. I don't know. The the portrayal of Trey as a young guy that could be anyone is so accurate his attitude toward certain things and how all the challenges that life had thrown at him, he'd still overcome them. There was dialogue between him and Dee's mother, his ex-stepmom, I guess you could say, where he said, yeah, you messed up. I've messed up as well, but that doesn't give you an excuse to stop moving along, moving forward. And as well as that, Trey comes and reads the his essay to his grandmother, and it's such like a bittersweet ending but it's so perfect in the way that it aligns itself and it's just great uh we're gonna have to stop there but this has been exciting to deal with you guys and i expect 20 years from now i'll be this old guy just saying i wonder if i can get on the jose acevedo show i wonder if you let me on as a guest come on i let you on as a guest time to let me on as a guest uh it's great to have all you guys from the journalism media academy with us but it's time to say goodbye to kimberly the playwright of brownsville song b-side for trey She's also 2014-2015 Aetna New Voices playwright at Hartford Stage Company. And to Curtis Cook Jr., who plays Trey. Uh, the play is running at the Long Wharf until April 19th. Thanks also to Jose Acevedo, Floyd Watkiss, Walter Vasquez, Viquan Herring, and Odane Campbell. They're all students at the Journalism and Media Academy Magnet School in Hartford. We'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.